Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a weekly podcast on happiness and work culture. Hello, this is Bruce Daisley. You can catch up with all the previous episodes on our website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. There's some good episodes that have happened recently. If you didn't check out the episode with Cal Newport, I think that was a fantastic one on deep work. A lot of people love the Bianca Ingalls story about really sort of designing the workplaces for our culture. And obviously the Dan Cable episode about being alive at work is just this incredible preview of his book that's coming out at the start of next year so some really good episodes that have happened in the in the last few weeks i saw an interesting article this week which was suggesting that german academics have been warned about chinese spies following them on linkedin and it did make me reflect on my own open linkedin policy i think i've, I've described probably unfairly i've used the word randos to describe some of the people who've connected to me on linkedin and i have solicited that but sometimes i had a, a big flurry of people joining me from the Gambia a couple of weeks ago and while shout out to my Gambian crew uh, part of me did wonder if I was going to get accosted with money making schemes that maybe might compromise my LinkedIn integrity certainly the value of my professional network is so valued to me that I would hate to do anything that undermined me in the eyes of the community I'm not sure how your own end of years going I've got the uh, I've got a trip to the darts arranged on Sunday it's not just all culture and work I'm going uh, me and I suppose these days you describe them as your crew me and my crew are going as the stars of Mario Kart I'm actually going as Wario I thought even though I'm the organizer of it it would be the height of arrogant vanity to ask to be Mario myself so I am going as as Wario but uh, look out for us if you're at the darts at Ali Pali on Sunday right then So, with the end of term field, there's a a few different changes here. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be sort of dropping a a series of short episodes, which are sort of 10, 15 minute things that might fall into your feed. that are just very simple one-off ideas about how to improve your work. People I've interviewed in the course of the last year that probably wouldn't make up a full episode, but are fascinating enough to give you sort of a a small bit of insight and small bit of knowledge. And then uh, there's an end of year review, and that's myself and Andre Spicer. Andre's had a series of, well, fantastically reviewed books out this year. He had Business Bullshit, which you might have seen 
uh, featured in The Guardian, in The Telegraph. Also, he's had a, a book called A Year of Self-Improvement. And uh, I'll be chatting to Andre. You'll remember him from, I think, episode nine. Myself and Andre will be discussing the Ubergeddon, the BBC pay gap. We'll be discussing uh, just really uh, probably some of the fallout of the Harvey Weinstein episode and whether that's coming to an office near you. So a bit of a year-end review coming up. So there's a few things that should be dropping into your feed. And if you subscribe to Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, you'll you'll receive those on, on your podcast app. Today's episode is an in-depth discussion with Richard Reed, founder of Innocent Smoothies. Now, British, French, German people will know the story of Innocent. It's Britain's number one juice brand. We're actually so familiar with the company. It accounts for half of the fruit smoothie market in the UK. We forget what an unlikely success story was. It wasn't the first smoothie to launch in the UK. That was P&J Smoothies. And uh, well done if you remember that one. But Innocent had very few resources, no distribution, small investment and almost nothing to call upon in their battle against the big boys one of their secret weapons was they said their culture helped define their success and that for me meant that it would be a fascinating place to go and to talk to Richard now Richard uh, now runs an investment project called Jam Jar Investments and so he's uh, he sold the the business to Coca-Cola but I was interested in how culture really had been their driving force one of the other things that Innocent was credited with was the invention of wackaging you know this sort of sometimes overly matey overly familiar packaging that comes on some of the products we buy next time you're on a virgin train and it and it tells you not to flush your boyfriend's jumper down the toilet that's wackaging and you can thank richard for that so uh we, we have a very in-depth discussion about how they built the culture at innocent actually how it wasn't just all nicey-nicey what the company stood for at the end we give a slightly abbreviated shout out to a brilliant new book he's uh, had out in the last couple of months which is called if i could tell you just one thing and that's a series of the most incredible people in the world and james corden and those people are giving their single piece of advice what they would advise anyone to uh, to take on board the single piece of advice they would give so uh, we talk about that briefly at the end and i'll give a shout out to it again Here's Richard. Uh, we'll start with something really straightforward, which which is how much did you consciously try to design a culture at Innocent? Or how much was it just trying to preserve something that had already existed? Now, that is a tricky one. Because now, with hindsight and experience, capturing and enhancing a culture is something that we both see as massively valuable and something that we hugely advocate for any business that we invest in. Did we know it intellectually in advance when we started Innocent? No, not really. It came from the simple reality of this was a business set up by three friends. But we had a mindset of, and why should we pollute that or water that down just because we're setting up a business? We saw it very much as we think there's an advantage for being a business that talks and acts in an extremely informal, natural, friendly manner, which in our case is entirely authentic because it's set up by some simple, natural, friendly mates. So it's quite hard to say, was it all orchestrated? No. Were we mindful of it as we went through? Yes. Do I have an even greater appreciation now we're at the end of it looking back? Absolutely. 
When I look at what you tried to do, I guess it looks like, I mean, I read The Innocent Story, The Innocent Book that you put together. And it seems like a lot of cultures, you tried to commit to paper what was already happening. So you created five values. You talk about the importance of, of communication. Did you ever set about, sometimes when you look at Silicon Valley values, for example, that's where we normally see a lot of these things. They often sort of try to be a bit jarring and a bit controversial. How did you create those values? Or was it just committing to paper what you were seeing around you? Again, it's another really interesting question because actually I started out as a total cynic of the idea that it was going to be like corporate values. I almost thought we're the antithesis of that. Right. We're not going to have corporate mission statements and values because that's just the nonsense that big, old, stale companies appropriate. I thought we would just do it all naturally because we're three friends. And to be honest, it worked extremely well like that at first. We went from three to seven to 11 to 20. No problemo. The sense of mission to extent there was one and more importantly, what you're talking about, the values and the atmosphere of the company was just spread by osmosis by the way that we were because we're all sat in the same room and we're all talking to each other on a daily basis and we're all going to the same meetings because the company's so small, everyone's involved in everything. But when we got to sort of more than 20 people and then we weren't all in the same room and we weren't all going to all the same meetings I started seeing it from 20 to 40 people hang on there's people that aren't getting it I thought well, you can't have people not get the vibe you know the vibe's really important but I realized then well you can't expect people to get things that they don't understand what it is and so let's be specific what does someone not get in it look like that they might be a bit selfish okay. they might be being a bit slightly dishonest right we had this thing right Google have don't be evil. Our version of that was don't be lame. Lame is a little phrase that we use amongst our group of friends. Say, don't be la-. Being lame is when you finish the toilet roll and you don't replace it for the next person. Being lame is when you have your coffee but you leave the dirty cup in the sink rather than wash it yourself, even though you know there's no office cleaner. So in theory, you were saying someone else should wash your cup for you. So we had very on this policy of don't be lame. But we needed to make sure that people understood it and bought into it. So actually, I remember when we got to 41 people, that's when I decided... We're going to write all this stuff down, but we're going to do it collectively as a community. And so I got everyone in the business, groups of eight, spend a lunchtime with me, throw in a few free sandwiches. And we would just talk through what the things that we stand for and stand against as a community, because that's what I'd read in a book that really opened my mind to it. It said a business is not a building or technology or bits of equipment. A business is a community of human beings. That's actually, if you're clear-sighted, look at what a business is. It is a group of human beings coming together to do something. And therefore, all human emotions, psychology, dynamics play out. And if you capture that and enhance it, you do well. And if you ignore it or you pollute it, you do badly. So we were very clear of we're a community. Communities work best when everyone contributes. And you have a shared set of how do we want to be, what are our behaviours as a community. And it was a crazy exercise because I got everyone to say everything that we stood for and stood against. We had over 3,000 things on the list. We were against gun crime. <laughs> we were pro-cheese. There was a lot of people that loved cheese in the company. So, And it was great to get it all out and to get a sense of what we're all about. Now, obviously, we're not going to make that as our lead statement. And although I have to say, to this day, the the longest serving, the most popular society in Innocent is Cheese Club. It's the most attended. It happens once a month, every month. And at the end of the year, there's a cheese off where every cheese that's been voted the cheese of the month competes to be cheese of the year at the end. Getting slightly off the track there, we get back to five things that we thought would guide our behaviours, which is about being natural, 
talk natural, act natural, make only natural products of natural ingredients. So it had both a very sort of logic interpretation for the nature of the products, but also acting naturally and talking naturally was a really good sort of guideline to just the day-to-day behaviours. Entrepreneurial, we started from a market stall. We continued to keep that entrepreneurial flame alive, take risks. We had this little catchphrase, which is you're 70% sure, then go for it. And that really helped people sort of understand decision-making and that you shouldn't make reckless decisions, but you shouldn't also get lost in research and never pull up and actually give it a go. So we said, if you're 70% sure, go for it. That was part of being entrepreneurial. It was about being responsible. We wanted to make products that were healthy, that were sustainably sourced. It was about being commercial. Because actually, you put those first three together, it's starting to sound a bit like a hippie commune. Yeah. So the commercial thing was, we're a business. We need to grow. We need to chase sales. We need to make money. Because that's what creates the opportunity. And fifthly, it was about being generous, which was about generous with each other, with our time, with feedback, but also making sure that we shared the value that was created. So every employee became a shareholder and we give 10% of our profits to charity. So actually, it wasn't some just sort of generic corporate exercise. It really did codify the DNA of the business. And it became, I think, one of our greatest contributors to the long-term success that we understood this is what we were for this is what we wanted of our people it helped on recruitment because people that were interested in these things would come and people that weren't wouldn't so actually we found that the culture got stronger and stronger and stronger and we were very we took it very seriously we recruited against the values rewarded against the values we retained people against the values we promoted people against the values equally importantly we fired people if they didn't exhibit and inhabit the values the biggest rewards both in terms of promotions, in terms of equity, in terms of pay rises, went to the people that were seen as being the greatest embodiments of the values of the business. And the people that went off values were the people that were asked to leave the business. So we really, really put proper teeth to it. Right, because that's the bit, I guess, that it's the most interesting because a set of benign adjectives sometimes can seem, it's like, what good is this? And I saw you talking somewhere else about, you know, you were very strict on performance management. You were very strict on, on managing performance. Can you talk about that side of it because I think that's where critically culture comes into its own doesn't it you know when it's not just this lovely kind supportive environment but it's also an accountable environment as well yes I think these days some people when they're talking about culture they hear culture they think oh that's about getting a table tennis table for the office exactly yeah oh god no no. culture is really about how you get people to be sort of spiritually mentally physically totally engaged with the the organization and the community within it I actually think that starts with the values firstly so find people that chime individually themselves with the values of the organization secondly to your point it's then incredibly incredibly important to give those people the best opportunity to be excellent at their job and to be really successful. The precursor to being successful and being really good at your job is understanding exactly what it is you're supposed to be delivering to be successful. So Innocent had this thing that every single person in the business had five objectives. Those five objectives would be unique to them over the next six months. And each of those five objectives, the things that they had to deliver, would align directly to one or two or three or four or five of the company's objectives. So we had this thing that infiltrated the whole organization called the rule of five five objectives for the business five objectives for the individual that meant that everyone knew exactly what they personally were supposed to deliver to be successful and how in doing so it helps deliver the objectives of the organization and how often were they updated was that was that like an annual thing a quarterly thing a weekly thing twice a year okay so you would have your principal objective setting in january for the forthcoming year and then there would be a refresh and an assessment against them in the june and you would be then given as part of the rule of five a score of one through to five depending on how you're doing in delivering your objectives and how well you're doing in embodying the values
stages of the business. Five was you're an absolute superstar. One was you need to look for a different job. And not many people got ones, but we'd always make sure some were. And then two was you're falling short of what's expected of you, but we believe in you and we're going to invest in extra time and management to get you up to a three because three means you're good and you're delivering what's needed. Four is you're excellent. Five is, you know, you're just in the stratosphere. But having the absolute transparent clarity of what am I supposed to do and how well am I doing it and how does that contribute to the bigger picture? That was far and away the most important bit of creating a high performance, high engagement culture. It wasn't all the lovely fun stuff that we did. The lovely fun stuff can actually take away the energy and the good bit of the culture if you're not doing the really important stuff well. So it's, the, it's that ultimately it's the tough edge, it's the tough underbelly that really makes the good side of the culture positive for everyone else, right? It's yes, but I mean, I, guess I, I would be careful about saying it's the tough underbelly because okay. we're dealing with human beings here, right? What do we all want? Well, we, we all want to get on in life. We all aspire to grow, to do better, to achieve more. And a good organisation should be 100% in complicit in helping you achieve that. There's no point being doe-eyed about it. You do want to, throughout your career, be able to earn more, to take on more responsibility, to have greater opportunities. And that starts with performance management. Now, it has to be actually led by the individual. If the individual's not engaged in their own improvements, then they're a lost cause. But the organisation has to create a culture where it's just absolutely vividly part of what we care about. And that was going back to the values. As I said, we had five. One was about being generous. And to make sure these weren't generic words, underneath each of those headline words, we had three specific examples of the behaviours that we okay. met by being generous. And generous, first one was being with feedback. And it said very specifically, always making sure people know when they've done something well. And more importantly, letting them know when they've fallen short. Because that's an act of generosity. In Britain especially, we tend not to like to give the negative feedback because we feel a bit awkward. So we let it pass. So we're putting our own comfort before someone's ability to improve. That's not generous, that's actually selfish. So it was a constant education of people to understand that by taking the time out to let someone know where there was a gap between what was expected and what they delivered, you're helping them do better next time. And so the whole organisation was massively engaged in how can we help each other raise our game? Even the training, all the training was done in-house at Innocent. We had this thing that I'd learned from how doctors are teached in medical school that you watch one, do one, teach one. In terms of any, some of the most basic the first time you inject someone through to like you know doing a brain operation watch one do one teach one so we had this spirit what does that mean so watch one do, do one, one teach one i.e if you're sat in a training course say on i don't know presentation skills knowing in the next three months you're going to have to be the person teaching okay the course god did you pay more attention right so every course at innocent was taught by people at innocent created by people at innocent because there's always someone who was brilliant at project management so codify it they teach it then the people that are taught go on to teach it it was amazing it took a bit of work mm. to get it up and running, but otherwise you're paying trainers to come in, teach and then leave. Crazy. It, it, so all these things, it was all this massively positive endeavour to help people be more and more successful, but in line with the values of the business. And one of them is like success together rather than expense of the other. So one of the things, I guess, that underpins all of that is recruitment, right? It's sort of like this hidden part of culture. Everyone thinks culture is what happens during the day. And I guess there's a big part of it, which is getting the right person in there who's not being lame or who or maybe can be trained not to be lame. Well, you go, in my opinion, straight to the absolute heart of the bullseye. It is the single most important decision ever made as a business leader who you recruit into your company. Obviously, I mean that in terms of culture, but I mean generally it is the single most important determinant of your performance, your culture, 
everything comes from who you recruit. You can never change the values of an individual, and nor should you. That's some sort of weird sort of psychops. Individuals have a code of behavior that's inherent with them, and so I guess to do with their combination of their genes and their childhood and their peer group. Your job is to find the ones that chime with what you're about and not try and shoehorn someone in that isn't. So yeah, I always said it, it was the single most important business decision, much more than how you're gonna raise the funds or which products you're gonna launch. It's like, who are you getting to join your business? Because my early point, your business is a community of human beings. So everything begins to go wrong or hopefully everything begins to go right with the quality of your recruitment. So tell me this, so I saw you talk about a couple of things. I'm, I'm just gonna sort of push you to get, to get a sense of them. So I saw you said that you had something called, it might be the lift test or the- Van test. The van test, right? So the idea that if you couldn't stand being in a van for three hours with someone, yeah. don't hire them. And I get it. And you also do something which has been very popular or did something that was very popular, which was give a lump sum of money to people who recommend a friend. Proper now, money as well. So those things, I think, think both probably through a prism of 2017 2018 people say lead to cultural homogeneity mm. that you basically end up with this legion of people who've got degrees from the same places or look the same with the view that those things now probably we need to try and think of a bit more diversity and mix would you adapt any of those things now do you, th do you think the van test is, is still fair yeah totally because the van test is it just simply said this on the recruitment form for when you're interviewing someone would you want to be in a van with them for three hours now why would you recruit someone that you wouldn't want to be in a van with them for three hours? I'm not saying, are you going to be like, this, this is, by the way, it wasn't about trying to be, everyone trying to be mates. It's just like, but did you as a human being like them? Did you respect them? I, if there's someone that you don't want to be in a van with for three hours, it's quite an interesting way of thinking about things. That's not about a lack of diversity. That's about a massive understanding humans for seeing through to their humanity. Actually, Innocent is a deliciously and very refreshingly diverse group of people. And the very fact that we were saying that we are values-led and looking for people that are committed to the mission as opposed to these get a 2-1 from Oxbridge. It really helped bring people in. One of our very best hires was a guy who was a snowboarding instructor. That hadn't been in university. Don't get me wrong, I'm not being disingenuous. We of course love people with good academics. But I tell you this, we had a way of scoring people of 12 points, scoring a maximum of 12 points. Three was about your academics in terms of universities. Three was about what you did in, in terms of your experiences. Three was about what you had done in terms of your hobbies or outside interests. And three was what you've been doing at school. You could, you needed nine points to get an interview. You could not have gone to university, but what we'd be looking for is someone who had really nailed it in terms of contribution to their community, whatever that is, charity work, organizing the football team, whatever it took. But we were always looking for signs of people that fundamentally came down to two Two human characteristics. Ambition, i.e. an ability to do things and try things and take things on, and but in equal measure, altruism. A sense of togetherness, doing it responsibly. Because we felt that they were, you get those well-balanced, altruism and ambition, it's like this two jet engines that propel you forward so fast. If you're too ambitious and not altruistic enough, you're going to be one of those people that is all about the take and for themselves. If you're too ambitious, sorry, if you're too altruistic and not really sort of ambitious, then you could end up just being a bit too sort of inward focused and forgetting the fact that this is a business here trying to create jobs and wealth but together and I would say that this was absolutely true of all the best performing people at Innocent they were both 
we got to win. We're going to win in a way we can be proud of. We're going to win together. Okay, because I saw you said, there's a couple of things you said about recruitment, which was, I guess, you said you get rid of snipers, so get rid of these sort of negative forces. In And I was I was interested to explore that a bit more. And I saw you talk about you'd rather leave holes than have the wrong, per, wrong person in place. Now, both of those things, when you're like a rapidly growing business, things are going immensely well. It must feel like a big sacrifice to say, actually, that guy, we're getting rid of him. That woman, we're not going to hire her. Does it feel like sacrifice at the time or does it feel like the right thing to do? Well, look, firstly, I've got to say this, mate. It's a lot easier when I'm writing my book after I've <laughs> left the company. And okay. so and I, I've got a great talent at hypocrisy. So I'm not yeah, for one yeah. second saying that we kept up to those ideals the yeah. whole way through. In fact, it's because we didn't keep up to those ideals all the time that sometimes we did just go sod it we're so desperate even though we don't feel like they're the right person let's get him in anyway yeah. god did we always come to regret it yeah so we learned as much through being burnt as getting it right there were times when as i said we, we made the wrong decision and you know you absolutely know internally if you're listening to yourself that i'm making this decision out of expediency not because i really believe it's the right person always created six times more work than if you just doubled down and just carried on recruiting for a little bit longer. And it's so easy for me to say, and I know it's so desperate, but we would communicate with people openly. Look, we know we're basically asking you to be doing two jobs. We know that's an unreasonable ask. So we're just acknowledging that we are asking you to do that and you are doing it and we're grateful for that. But we're insistent on getting only brilliant people. So it's going to take us longer, but we're going to go further when we get there. There's another thing as well. I resisted firing people for a long period of time as well because I thought it was sort of unethical. Of course, you get to a certain level you go it's so unethical to keep people on when they're not right because you are actually chewing up their life and their time if you're having conversations with them that they're not party to about they're not good enough and you're not happy with them and you, but you're just sort of kicking them out to pasture you're literally screwing with their lives it's never really talked about but i believe this there's a massive spiritual dividend from firing people obviously in brackets if you do it in the right way because you're letting someone get on with the rest of their life and we had a rule again i'm not saying we always subscribe to it but we got better at it it's like you only ever have a conversation about someone as if they were in the room and if you're saying things you're not prepared to say to them in the face then you need to go and speak to them about it and that was a really good simple little management tool talk about people as if in the room ideally have them in the room but this idea you could sit and go well they're, they're rubbish aren't they oh god you know they're such a drongo it's so easy to do but it's yeah. toxic it's poisonous and most of all, it's irresponsible. And it came back to one of the values. The responsible thing to do, if you're not feeling it, for whatever reason, because it's never about the individual. It's not about their character. It's not about their humanity. It's about their performance. They're probably not ideally suited to this. And there's something else out there that they would be suited to. So whenever we did actually fire someone, and of course you do it in a really humane way so people leave with their confidence intact and all the rest of it. But God, everyone benefited. I remember there's one person who was clearly that I brought in, a very senior person. I recruited them knowing that they weren't good, but I was so desperate. They came in, it was awful from start to finish, and then I did fire her, and people burst into tears when I did it, and came and said, thank you so much, and I thought, I've been put so much pressure. They've been under so much pressure. There's someone, And to be fair to the person that was fired, they were having a miserable time as well, so yeah. sometimes you just have to be ruthless. You've got to be ruthless. I guess that's two things, isn't it? Not only is the person is beneficial, but to everyone, like you say there, the collective sense of relief when something that's so evidently wrong yeah. is resolved. And also, don't do it to be a nice guy if that doesn't appeal. Yeah. Do it for this 
right? The good people are going to leave if you keep the bad people. Someone's leaving. Good people don't stay working in organizations with bad people. So either you get rid of the people that are underperforming, keep the good people, or you keep the underperformers because you're too chicken to do something about it. I promise this, the good ones are going to leave. Tell me this. So we've talked about the qualities that you want in a good person and that thing that you're hiring for. So if you're then advising, whether it's a, someone at school or at college, what are the, the things that you should try and embody then? Is it as easy? Or to make yourself employable. Yeah, but I mean, like, you know, because to some extent, you're saying there and we're saying there that these desirable qualities in some people that you look for, they sort of emanate a certain energy that you're like, right, okay, that's what I want to hire. So what are those things? Ah, well, we have to be slightly careful about that because I think interviews are completely flawed as a way of determining someone's ability to do the job or not. So what do you do instead? Basically, what you're hoping is they're going to be really good at the job. So what we always did was make sure they're given the opportunity to prove that they're really good at the job. Don't get me wrong, of course there is the interview stage, but once you're past through that, then it's about actually we would always give you the to-do list or the project you'd be starting on on your first day and just get a sense of how you approach, how you think about things. That was a much better test than sitting in interviews talking to people because the problem with interviews is people have got that sort of charisma who are extroverts. They do really well in interviews, Mm. but you do not want a business just full of extroverts. Mm. I'm quite extrovert. I know how to speak publicly. It's amazing what you get away with if you've got that ability to sort of sound confident even when you're not. But it doesn't mean I'm the cleverest guy in the room. Actually, a lot of the time, the quieter ones are the ones that do better work. So you've got to make sure you're spotting those as you're going through the recruitment procedure. And it can't just be there for all about, hey, how good are you at getting people to like you when you sit in a room and talk to them? Give them the opportunity to show what they can do. I think that was really, really crucial. But in terms of how do you get the interview in the first place, then we would always, I would always spend more time looking at the bottom of the CV than at the top. Because I think you get a sense of someone's character. What do they do with their time? Their actions show you their preferences. It shows you their capabilities. It shows you their interests. It shows you the nature of the thing that they do. And that's what you're trying to find out. So that's what I say to my godchildren. It's like, do as much extracurricular stuff as possible. Weirdly, we would also be massively pro someone who'd set up a business. You know, obviously, the fact they're applying for a job means that business didn't work. Give me someone that's tried to set up a business and it hasn't worked out than someone that hasn't because it's showing that they've got that. They're prepared to have a go. They're prepared to take the risk. And there's nothing like having a failure to teach you some really yeah. important stuff as well. We all know that. And so like now, when, when you're, you've moved on from Innocent and you're... I guess you're looking, you're investing in, in other things. Innocent seemed to me, the great culture seemed to propel you on to greater things and, and help it keep did, you yeah. going. It seemed like an energising force. So you're investing now. Do you look to see whether you can perceive a strong culture or do you look at good business ideas and think, I'm going to actually give direction about culture? Well, certainly when we're investing, the thing that we're spending most time thinking about is the nature of the founding team. Firstly, we prefer it if it is a team than just an individual because we're big believers in the power of collaboration and it is an extremely rare individual that has everything it requires to be a successful entrepreneur in one person. So we prefer teams. Our belief is this, that it's the single biggest determinant of success, the quality of that founding team. Do they have a shared set of values and vision, but do they have complementary skills that all lend themselves well to the nature of the opportunity they're going after. What we haven't, and it's a, it's a it's a current work stream at Jamjo, is like we haven't found yet the equivalent of getting someone to do a bit of the work that we had at Innocent for testing mm. whether they're going to be good at the job. We're still just caught in pitches, which are essentially interviews, where you can get really excited by someone who might speak particularly confidently and have a sort of whizzy presentation to show you, which isn't, again, a good precursor to determine whether it's going to be successful or not. But you can't help, you're, you're just emotions take over, you start getting excited because they know what they're doing in terms mm. of 
terms mm. of giving it a sell. So we're trying to find what's the equivalent of setting them a work challenge, find out are they actually good at what they need to be good at. So there is this thing of, we know this much, it's about psychology. It's about being able to spot the nature of people, their brain, how they work, how they think. That's what you need to be good at. In terms of specifically then the wider culture, it's just a small point, but we would never invest without going to check their office. You just find some stuff out. What's the vibe like? Go on, big... what, what sort of things do you notice? You notice, are people engaged? Right, Are they right. working hard? Are they looking upbeat? Are they being treated badly? Are they all like just shoved in a dark, dank corner somewhere? Is it hierarchical or is it, you just, I can't tell you, there's a, there's a science to it, because of course there isn't, but you, it's never a neutral experience of trying to get a sense of it. Because that's all, I guess, investing, you're only ever really trying to get a sense of things to give you a better chance of making the right call. It's a, you're really trying to predict the future and that's a mugs game. It's all gambling at the yeah. end of the day. But yeah, we're big believers in really investigate the founding team speak to all their friends and their colleagues and their ex-bosses and all that kind of stuff spend as much time with them as possible ask them about each other we had a great one just last week where we said so how does it work and this three of them we go, one guy goes well i see like i'm the one in the middle and keep these two sort of and the other guy goes no i'm the one in the middle and keep you two so you know you just sort of <laughs> have they worked out their own sort of dynamic yet? yeah really important we've invested in two businesses out of 30 so it's not big but fundamental happened within a month both of those businesses, the founders had completely fallen out to the point where they're trying to sue each other. Absolute, like, playground, pulling hair, name-calling, insane. But they masked it. They turned up to the meetings, they were like, they came across so well in right. an interview. That's our fault. We didn't do enough digging around to see, you've got to get beyond the facade. One of the ways you get beyond the facade is getting into their office. Yeah. Speak to some people that aren't in charge. Because again, this is the other thing you know about businesses. It's never the people at the top taking the credit that do all the work. It's just the insanity. You're the founder. I was the founder. So, you know, I, I become the lightning rod publicly for the credit. But there's 300 people doing the work, most of whom were smarter and working harder than I was. You do a lot better by speaking to the people actually doing the job. How's it going? How are they regarded? What, when did they last get given some feedback? What products are you working on that you're excited by? Just intel. Yeah, sort of the intangibles, but you, the stuff you detect face-to-face, -face, I guess. Yeah, because, of course, the fundamental truth is in a pitch, they're pitching. It's not... It's not an objective transferring of information. So you've got to try and find your way to just get to the actual information and data as best as you can, rather than just be on the receiving end of a pre-prepared pitch. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, so look, you've just done a, a new book, which is this fabulous series of you chatting to, I mean, a remarkable list of really names. Really remarkable people, yeah. <laughs> Was it hard? I mean, like a remarkable list of names, each of them bestowing one big nugget of advice. Well, and and so what were your big takeaways from that? Well, I have to say, for me personally, it was an incredible project to be part of, because as you know, it's going around speaking to some of the most remarkable people in the world and asking them to reflect on their life and times and stand behind a single piece of advice which above all else they hold to be the most important and be the most true. And we deliberately set it up to have the widest possible set of human experiences. So really big names from politics such as Bill Clinton or Mike Bloomberg in business or Judy Dench from the arts or I've just interviewed the founder of the Black Lives Matter movement. But also people that have been through really distressing experiences. An Afghan vet that had three of his limbs blown off. A concert pianist that survived of sexual abuse as a child. An Auschwitz survivor. But then Simon Cowell entertaining the nation. You know, so people have been through the best of times, the worst of times. I like people. I, I love humans. I think we're great. We're really, 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 really nice as a species, apart from the crazy shit we sometimes do. But meeting all these people and realising, God, they're really nice. That was lovely. Even these people, that some of the most famous people in the world, the most powerful people in the world, they're dead nice. And so I just found that brilliant. And then I've just been given 60 of the best pieces of advice I could ever wish to hear and hearing it direct from the horse's mouth. It's brilliant. And for me, there's a, there's a reason for the book. It's because my life turned on a sixpence when I was given a couple of amazing bits of advice. I was fortunate enough to have been in a room with some smart people that gave me some good advice. But I know that's a massive advantage. Not everyone gets to be in the room with smart people giving good advice. Not everyone has access to good role models. So the spirit of the book is to try and capture the wisdom of the age, make it available to everyone, and all authors' profits go to fund social mentoring and inclusion charities across the world. So hopefully it, it all sort of, the circle completes itself. I was reading through it on a, a train journey on Friday. As I was flicking through it, I was astonished. I mean, the collection, it's not only an immensely diverse list of people, but this just, I mean, like you say, Bill Clinton's in there. The gravitas of a lot of the people you spoke to is remarkable. But of all the people you spoke to, was there, was there one bit of advice that stuck with you the most? It's a tough one because actually I, you know, advice is like, Advice isn't sort of typically universally applicable. What's great is about advice is, but it can just lie there in earth if it's not the thing that's right for you. But you pick up stuff and you go, that actually, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, it's like, you know, when you're playing those computer games, you pick up a sword or a, a shield, or whatever. you pick up what's, what's ever useful to you. The bit that I specifically loved, there's a relationship therapist called Esther Perel in it. She's the number one expert in the world globally about relationships Everything from sexual relationships, but to loving relationships, to family relationships. And she just said this very simple thing, which I'm sure as soon as you hear it, you'll know to be true. But wow, I found it like profoundly beautiful in its simplicity. She just said, we all want the best quality of life for ourselves. Of course we do. The thing we may not understand is the single biggest determinant of our quality of life is the quality of our relationships with our friends and our family. And if you take that insight and then make it then the main thing in your life to try and serve and do what's best for the quality of your relationships with your friends and your family, because let's face it, we're probably not putting that as our first port of call. We're probably thinking about how do, how do, how do, how do I get the car or, or whatever work. it is. Yeah, exactly. Or work, deadline, which I'll get. I get there's the pressure. We've all got those. But it's like just long term, be thinking about my quality of life, how much I enjoy my life is going to be determined by the quality of my relationship with my friends and family, which antipathy tends to be about thinking how how can I help them? And I love that. A mm. really simple but profound thing. And mm. I really have since listening to her and me going, 
you know what? That makes total sense to me. Now you've, I didn't think of it myself, but now you've said that. It makes total sense. So I have really, since she told me that, I have just increased the amount of time I, I, I invest in my friends and my family and trying to be like a decent son, brother, friend, mate, boyfriend, father. And I, I, have, I swear, man, I, I'm not saying it's related, but I think it is. I've genuinely never been happier. I feel like most days I'm sort of approaching the outer edges of human happiness. I mean... And I think I think it's that. I think it's because I listened to her advice. It's funny that is because uh, along the course of I checked to a happiness expert. I think in March or something, and he said exactly the same. He said, really? you know, like happiness is directly your own happiness is directly related to the happiness of your friends, and like you know, sort of they're all interconnected. And investing more time in your friends directly correlates to happiness. I saw that. I, I mean, you know, one of the people I met for the book was the Dalai Lama. Yeah, that's right. Incredible. That's a real life moment. Right? I mean, unbelievable. Got Dalai Lama next to Bill Gates and the founder of Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's a real. Yeah. But he said, why are we all here? That question, why are we all here? To help each other. And end of, end of teaching. I just love that. Why are we all here? To help each other. Believe on the Dalai Lama. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't even say the name. Go go, go, go. If I could tell you just one thing, available in all good bookshops. (laughs) An ideal Christmas present, an all for charity. (laughs) Thank you, Richard. So like I say, Richard's book, if I could tell you just one thing, it's got some some very surprising people in there. I mean, it, you know, along the way, it's got uh, Johnny Ive, Andy Murray, Bill Clinton, Alan de Baton, fan of the show. Uh, we mentioned the Dalai Lama, not a listener, but uh, loads of people there. So uh, definitely worth checking out that book. And it's a, it's a really, it's a really sort of easy toilet book. Are you allowed to say that? really easy book for browsing when you've got just one or two minutes to spare uh richard's book's out now look out for the short episodes coming to your podcast over the next week or so always look forward to hearing from you you can tweet us if you search for our twitter handle which is eat sleep work repeat see you next time hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20 percent off your first order and a free cat toy terms and conditions apply see site for details hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com traffic jams tailgating pile-ups oh the joys of driving how could it get worse the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive that's right the biden administration's epa is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.